1: it's the autosport podcast we look back at Valtteri Bottas's victory in the Austrian Grand Prix and ask if he's a legitimate world championship contender Well, the Austrian Grand Prix has transformed the landscape of the Formula One World Championship with Valtteri Bottas taking his second win of the season to move himself kind of into contention for the World Championship, you'd say. So we've got plenty to talk about. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. Joining me today, I've got two guests who will offer their insight and thoughts and expertise in looking back on the race and what it means for the 2017 season. Joining me first is Anthony Rollinson, the Editorial Director of Autosport Media UK. It's a grandiose title. So what does it mean?
2: Oh, Because know. nobody knows what you do. Nobody knows what I do. Well, I'm here, aren't I? So this is one thing that I that's, do. You've turned up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I occasionally assist on podcasts for you. Well, that's, that's a valuable
1: thing. I should note that our other guest has gone somewhat droopy with his microphone. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's slumped <laughs> down. So uh, we shall attempt to let him... This is Stuart Codling, the deputy editor of, of F1 Racing, who's currently attempting to get himself back into... Uh, speaking for me have you recovered now have you rediscovered your verve
0: (laughs) have we got a phillips screwdriver because my microphone stand went a little detumescent there i was
1: looking for one earlier i feared that might happen but uh, yeah you're gonna have to just put up with it
0: it's something for our our listeners i think you've made a
2: note on our running order here which i think we should share it says remember your name And stop saying obviously all the
0: time. I mean, obviously you have to do that, don't you?
1: These are are universal pieces of advice. Regular listeners to our podcast might realise that I constantly say obviously for no reason. It annoys me when, uh, when going through the podcast. So I'm sure it must annoy them. As for my name, very
2: occasionally, you might
1: find previous editions where I might have forgotten to introduce myself properly.
2: Our uh, keen-eared listeners should note how many times you always say obviously, send in how many times obviously is said.
1: And then i have to pay in some kind of swear jar.
0: When I used to cover the American Le Mans series, we used to keep an audit of how often J.J. Leto would say, you know, because, you know, he would talk at you on know, in press conference, you know, and he'd say, you know, every few words, you know. And, you know, I just don't, you know, I no, you know, why he would say, you know, you know.
1: That's an uncanny impersonation. It's like he's in the room. Well, I should remind everyone this is a podcast about about motorsport. In this case, we'll be discussing Formula One a great deal. So, so let's get on with it. We've been, we've met everybody. We know who everyone is. I've said my name. I don't think I've said obviously, except in the context of referring to not saying it. So, I think we're all right so far. Item one on the agenda is Valtteri Bottas, second one of the year, title contender now, new deal and in inevitability with Mercedes. What do we reckon?
0: Well, nothing's inevitable, but. Who, Death and taxes. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, and Morris dancing. Oh, no, that's um, something you should try anything once except, isn't it? Who would replace him putatively? Who would do a better job? Um, well, there's I a few
1: dri- different questions. There's a few drivers fair. on the market, aren't there?
0: Maybe I should do a Christian Horner and ask my own question and then answer it in my sentence so well, that you let's, don't get to... let's too,
1: uh, ease back a little bit from the question and say what we know Mercedes want from a driver. They want a driver who fits in well, Bottas seems to, a driver who can win on the days when Hamilton doesn't, Check, he's taken points off Vettel in that race by beating him. And a driver who can score big points for the Constructors' Championship and also be close enough to be in contention for the Championship in his own right.
0: And apolitical as well, not a destabilising factor within, not not so much the team, but with the dynamic with, with Lewis, who is that kind of person that has to be managed and preserved and kept pointed in the right direction. Because sometimes, bless him, Lewis can get ideas into his head that uh, are possibly not born out in fact, you know, fantasy engine sabotage and whatnot. And having having a teammate who can push him hard without seemingly having malice aforethought can help with that not happening.
2: I think Damon Hill made a very interesting point at the weekend. He made an observation about Valtteri along the lines of um, he has a, a very deep, quiet pride and conviction, and he himself feels that this is his biggest chance, which it obviously is and therefore will do everything he can to deliver on the opportunities that he has been given. And I think that's a really astute observation. I'd expect no less from Damon, who's a very, very smart bloke, as we all know. But I think Valtteri, without being overtly political, as you you mentioned, or without being a destabilising factor, would very happily go out and eat Lewis Hamilton's lunch, if he could do so, without actively destabilising Lewis. And I think he's kind of doing that.
1: Jenson Button used to be quite good at doing that, didn't Mm. he? A few little set-up directions that yep. took Lewis by surprise and just little bits and pieces. Nothing overtly wrong, yep. but just kind of keeping him on his toes. Yeah,
2: You don't get to be a race-winning Grand Prix driver in the best team in Formula 1, or certainly one of the two best teams in Formula 1, without having that kind of stuff about you. You know, past championship winner, proving himself at every level, and lo and behold, he's got the big chance and he's proving himself. And that's because they're made of the right stuff.
1: I think the other thing with Bottas is he's also one of those drivers who had to kind of fight hard to get his opportunity. First, get into Formula 1 with Williams originally, which he did on Mary He didn't have monstrous backing behind him. He's done it on Ability. And then once he was in at Williams, obviously there was a a of buzz around him. Ferrari made a concerted effort to get him. They, they didn't meet the release clause figure. They couldn't come to an agreement with Williams. And I think Bottas knew last year that if he didn't get into somewhere different for 2017, he was in danger of just being stuck at a Williams-level team for good. And I think the fact that effectively he knew that maybe his best opportunity had passed him by and then it's suddenly come back thanks to Rosberg's retirement. I think he's been close enough to that all is lost point to realise how valuable this opportunity is.
0: He has got a savvy management team around him. Didier Cotant's been around, uh, worked with Mick Akin and uh, overseen a lot of young drivers careers. So he'll have been a, a word in the ear at, at the right time. But there is a sort of a myth that Bottas has had silver spoon treatment just because he's, he's been able to work with uh, high profile people, but everything he's achieved has been on merit and he's never had better equipment.
1: And of course, when Bottas first got his opportunity with Williams, I think he did 15 FP1 sessions in 2012. Williams examined the kind of performance he was turning on the green track, different fuel loads, programs, etc. And they reckon there was good evidence to suggest he was the quickest of their three drivers, quicker than the two race drivers. Pastor Maldonado, of course, he won a Grand Prix that year, and Bruno Senna. So even once he got that chance, he still had to do the job in the car to say,
2: yeah, I can do this. When he did get his chance, he had one of those those little glimmers of talent that you see with the really good drivers. You know, Hulk did it with his pole back in 2010, and Valtteri qualified third, wasn't it, in Canada? In in a, yeah, in a very, un, very unfancy. And he, he car. was he was stunningly he was, quick in Austin with yeah, low t- track s- temperatures. Although, although
1: he did blunder in Q3 and he he un- he underperformed in the end. He scored but his first points. He did yeah, score I points in that the, race. The, and the
2: teams only points that yeah, yeah, yeah. And little things like that. You think, okay, who's the guy who's delivering? Exactly. Yeah. There he is. You know, it's a very unstarry year, but the little glimmers that came were, f- were from from him. And I think these yeah. things they mark drivers out. You know, those who can just. Whatever it is, you know, Alonso back in the day when he do you remember when he when he was coming through from F three thousand, he had that really dominant race at Spa and just he just drove into the distance and these little things that that mark someone out. Um and all all the top drivers in some way they do something. Points on the debut, a brilliant wet weather drive, you know, unfancied finishing position, all these things. They all it's it's a mark of quality, I think.
1: He'll also have known that it's so important in the first half of the season to do something. And the first couple of races first few weekends were a little bit up and down. I expected a little bit more from him. Not so much through being unrealistic, but because I think he's a very good driver. And I think he would have been looking at things and thinking, right, okay, I've got to kind of get to a nice firm level and that Russia victory. Gave him that, so he ticked off the win and the pole in the first four races. And now he's been able to consistently score and haul himself into a position where he's not so far off the, off the title contention. That was our starting point. The two questions were new contract and is he a title contender? So I think we... We all agree, he's bound to get a new deal, isn't he? Yeah, I don't see anyone else doing a better job. You could argue that, say, Fernando Alonso fundamentally is one of the all-time greats and could do a slightly better job, but he brings all sorts of baggage. And certainly the point that's being made about the way he worked with with Hamilton, I think, would discount Alonso from from contention there. So how about title contender? The points are Vettel 171, Hamilton 151, Bottas 136. So Bottas isn't, isn't too far off. So do we consider him to be a credible title contender or is he mainly still a support actor Hamilton who just hang around if he can? Uh, another twice.
0: couple of weekends like this one and he could quite easily cruise into being a genuine championship contender and it goes to show that the fine margins. You get into one driver or another having a, a gearbox penalty and all of a sudden that makes it very, very difficult. And I think we'll we'll come down to it further, further into the podcast of... Um, whether Lewis could have done better this weekend if he'd managed to get the quicker t- the quickest time in Q3 and gone even further forward than he did in the race.
1: That's exactly it. Bottas was very fast in Austria, and in fact Lewis Hamilton said the same thing. He said, "Yeah, Valtteri did did very well." Hamilton did also point out he was the quickest driver in the race, which is which is true. I think where Hamilton is, I think he looks at Bottas and thinks, "Yeah, you're a good driver. I think I'm a bit better than you, so I'm all right with that." Rosberg seemed to carry all this sort of baggage for Hamilton and the old the long connections, the friendship between those drivers dating back to the karting days. I think they were initially seen as a positive for team cohesion. But of course, if you've known someone and dealt with them for so long, you know all their tricks and their foibles, etc., etc. And I think Rosberg was able to play on all of those little areas where he could get Hamilton. Whereas Bottas doesn't bring any of that. He's just any old driver, if you like. But he's still a driver who's able to take points off Vettel in a way that Räikkönen hasn't been taking points off, off Hamilton. So if you're Lewis, you're thinking, yeah, this, this is ideal for me.
2: Yeah, unless, unless, of course, Vettel keeps doing what he's done. I mean, we're almost at the midpoint of the season now, aren't we? What is it? There's a 20-point gap. So obviously it's totally recoverable, but there's no sign of weakness with that Ferrari, or the Ferrari mm-hmm. team, to be fair. Um, and if they do push even harder and coalesce even more explicitly mm-hmm. around Vettel, then a one-man championship charge is arguably the... The, the the thing that is going to have to be done to win this title. And that, I think, is going to present difficult questions for Mercedes because they're never going to... Unless it's a Schumacher-Breaks-his-leg scenario and you have to get behind your Eddie Irvin, there's no way that Mercedes will get behind Bottas in that way with Hamilton fully fit and functioning. So at some point, I think they're going to have to ask Paltteri to support Lewis to, if, if they want to win a driver's title.
1: I think that's very, very likely. I mean, it could be that if Bottas has a good run of races keeps beating and then you will change it round. But I think there's probably still that feeling that overall Hamilton is the the better all-round package at this stage, but Bottas has still got more room for, for improvements. So you I think, don't
0: want to be in a PK and Mansell scenario where a third party wafts in, or, or even a Hamilton and Alonso situation where a third party uh, wafts in at the final race and uh, snatches your dinner off the table, to, to use your earlier metaphor.
2: I've got a sneaky feeling that the... Uh the running order or the championship order that we're looking at now, Vettel, Hamilton, Bottas, may very well be the way we end up at the the, the end of the year. Vettel, I think there's, I've just got a feeling that Vettel's going to pull it together this year because Ferrari are showing themselves to be very unflaky. Um, Yeah. and, And Vettel's shown himself to be extremely consistent and aggressive and he wants it. And I think because of those com- combined factors, are exposing little flaws in Mercedes. Um, well, Mercedes which,
1: haven't had to have that fight
2: no, for the previous few years. And, the, and they're managing to consistently capitalise. Baku being a great example for all, all the right and wrong reasons, but Vettel finished ahead of a faster car, or, yeah. or you know, ahead of his, his main championship rival.
0: Ferrari's unflakiness is going to be a factor here, isn't it? Because for the first time in ages, they've got a combination of having a car that good Either the best or not far off the best car. And operationally, they're not shooting themselves in the foot uh, every weekend through chaos and strategic tomfoolery.
1: Well, of course, it was Austria last year where they left out Vettel for ages and he had the tyre the let go. Yeah. Just a, a baffling strategic decision. They made a lot of those last year.
0: And it's, it's, it's all the more strange for, from the outside looking in, not a great deal having changed in that organisation. Although, you know, you, you like to hope that some things have changed. Apart from the you know the general attitude of closed-dooriness, but uh, let's not get into that.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's not do too much inward-looking yeah. media chat. Let's move on to the start. Obviously, the great social media controversy of this race, there always has to be one thing that gets jump gate. People, uh, people excited is Valtteri Bottas's start, or his jump start. I think it's probably worth, before we get into this in detail, just looking at the FIA explanation for it, because there's a combination of reaction time with a little bit of allowance for a, a car moving anyway. Uh, FI spokesperson said in today's instance Valtteri Bottas did not exceed this limit before the start was given. Simply put he made an exceptionally accurate and fortuitous judgment call anticipating the moment the lights went out with great precision. Any movement prior to the moment the lights went out was within the tolerances allowed. So that's from the horse's mouth and actually Sky Sports F1 did an excellent comparison where they did it frame by frame with Anthony Davidson and the the Skypad which for those who haven't seen it's basically a giant iPad. Dread to think how much that costs. <laughs> we for it as Sky subscribers, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it showed that Bottas moved in the same frame that the lights went out. Do we accept that? Are we happy with that? It does seem self-evident that he did anticipate the lights to a, to a certain extent, and the FIA did seem to accept that. But if you do that, fine, as long as it as long as it's after.
2: I'm going to say something that'll probably get me shot. I haven't got my gun. It's thanks. It's it's a bit. Fortunately, like, I have. It's a, it's a bit like <laughs> the Baku thing. I'm I'm finding it difficult to care very much about this he didn't jump the start fact he won the race fact and and i'm sort of i can't get into the whole conspiracy aspect of it i I don't see the issue
1: there's no conspiracy it's a it's a marginal call and
0: ah but fine margins are how the sport is won and lost. well
1: exactly yeah there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it
0: If, if you're being purely objective about something like this then it is very easy to say what you've just said that There's no problem. It is what it is. And it's been decided upon. But of course, you know, we don't live in a perfectly objective universe. And there are people out there who... Uh, don't like to believe in fact, or they like to believe in alternative facts that are shaped by belief. (laughs) And they feel that if they simply restate their position uh, often enough, it will become become fact.
2: As Sebastian Battle tried to, actually, according to a note that we have here.
0: He disbelieved the fact. He disbelieved the fact even in the green room afterwards. Well, you know, at least they talked in the green room because sometimes it feels like all the air's disappeared out of the room. There's even been some websites that have framed the FIA's explanation as somehow letting Bottas off with a jump start because it was kind of within wriggle room and kind of it either he either engaged clutch and moved off after the lights went out or he did so before the lights went out and all the data all the measurements all the things that can be measured and observed. This isn't Schrodinger's cat. We're not looking into a cake tin to see if uh, uh, if the car moved or not before the lights went out. The lights went out. Very shortly after that, the car began to move forward at quite a speed. Therefore, ipso facto, et cetera, it did not jump the start.
1: With the additional caveat that any little movement there was before was within the tolerances because you have yeah. to have some tolerance in there because the car is a is a mechanical beast there are moving parts and it, it's impossible for it to be perfectly still while you're doing things with it
0: i think people who haven't driven a racing car even something like a uh you know a, a formula ford or something or people who haven't driven a motorbike which has a sequential gearbox they don't realize the extent to which when you slot one of those things into gear they do go and lurch forward as the the various things inside assume the position as it were I'm, as, as a non-engineer i uh, I've, <laughs> I've phrased that terribly
1: and it's interesting as well let's let's throw in a little uh a little case study outside of motorsport i want to go back to the 1996 olympics at the 100 meters final linford christie the defending olympic gold medalist from 92 does one big jump start and then the second jump start he's disqualified for two jump starts and you're out so he could not defend his olympic gold medal in the 96 final Whereas actually the great controversy there was that the second jump start was not literally a jump start. The reaction time I checked it earlier was zero point zero eight six seconds and the IOC only allowed one tenth of a second. In Bottas' case the reaction time was zero point two seconds. So just in comparing it to that, yeah, I think Bottas did anticipate the start. He got a little bit fortunate maybe. But yeah. put it this way. If like we're in the realms of thought crime well, exactly, now, not nothing Well, enough, there's like, enough, well there's, yeah. That's the thing. You have the tolerances in. You have a mechanism in place in order to judge whether they did it within a reasonable time. I think the reason Ricardo and Vettel were there is they probably thought, oh, you, you got a bit lucky there, anticipating. And maybe he did. But in that, it's live by the sword, die by the sword, isn't it? If you if you do that every time, you're going to have a load of jump starts, aren't you? So I think you just say to him, it's after the moment. As long as the, the phrase they kept saying was that as long as it was positive, as in plus time rather than Minus time. You're okay, so, you
2: know. Now, I've got another Olympiad timing fact nugget that we oh, can throw Oh, this is This is pretty this, exciting to an Olympic this, podcast. This will almost it? certainly get edited out. But anyway, what the hell. Did you know that pool records in uh, in the Olympics are set to the 100th, not the 1,000th, unlike all other uh, track and field events? Because it is apparently impossible to build an Olympic-sized swimming pool, as Gladys Emanuel might have said, Sorry, wrong soap. <laughs> 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 it, is impo- it is impossible to build an Olympic-sized swimming pool sufficiently uniform in length, and there is a margin of error in the size of the pool that would equate to more than a thousandth of a second difference in timing. So they have to only time it to a tenth. See what I mean? So, so the, ina- the inaccuracy in the build makes the timing accuracy moot because... Because pool. of cowboy builders. Be, because, the, because the pool could be more inaccurate than the timing.
0: <laughs> That's an
1: outstanding fact, isn't yeah. it? And yet, to throw in another sport, the Tour de France, a few days ago, we had a stage where it went down to a ten-thousandth of a second, didn't it? Yeah, it 10, yeah With uh, when Marcel, Marcel Kittel beat yep. uh, Edvald Bossenhagen. Gosh, a, if that, was, looked it, like if a, that
2: wasn't a photo finish, I don't know what was.
1: So, the start, did Bottas jump it? No. Let's move on. So, Lewis Hamilton... This really was, I guess, a damage limitation for him, wasn't it? He had a five-place grid penalty for a gearbox change, out of sequence. He started down in eighth on the grid, having only gone third fastest in qualifying. It was quite hard work in the race. He dispatched Grosjean and Perez pretty easily. Then once he got onto the back of Rijken, then he kind of cruised up to him, and it looked like he was going to make a pass quite easily initially, and then it just sort of stalemated. And then later on, he was chasing down Ricardo and got very close. It wasn't too bad for Hamilton in terms of banking, solid points, Bottas winning helped him quite a bit Hamilton maybe could have been third in that race you'd argue how do we see the weekend for him should he be fairly pleased considering
2: I, th- I think you're right on the damage limitation point. Because I think you know sort of statistically that's correct that's the truth isn't it but one of the things that still fascinates me with Lewis is how vulnerable he is emo- emotionally um, and how necessary it is for a, a compassionate team boss like Toto or compassionate if you like but a a figure who can put his arm around Lewis's shoulder is still a very necessary part of Lewis's setup. Like his, he finished fourth after a brilliant drive, and his head goes down, and you think, "Wow, that's that." To me, still shows quite a lot of vulnerability about his makeup. Someone who's that good, who's achieved what he's achieved, so he's a, about to eclipse the all-time poles record. Probably do it this year. He's right up there in all-time wins. He's, by by any measure, the most successful British driver ever. Um, and you sort of think he still needs he still needs the cuddle from 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 whoever it is, and that actually going back to what we were talking about earlier is what Rosberg was able to exploit, in my opinion.
1: He's an interesting character, and he's one of those people you know we've all dealt with him on and off for quite a long period of time. He can be quite variable from day to day, can't he? He seems to be quite sensitive to what's going on around him. I guess maybe he'll look back on that weekend and think, well, actually, could I have got Ricardo? Had he been fastest in qualifying rather than third? That would have mitigated the penalty. He might have been onto the back of Räikkönen a little bit earlier on. All these little things. He might think, well, okay, fourth with from eight, that's all right. But he was probably thinking, Well, really, I should have been on the podium there, or I should have been able to Yeah, I think I think third place would have been achievable. He was only one point four seconds behind Ricardo at the end and got pretty close.
0: It is interesting what you say there, Antoine. In in many ways, Lewis hasn't hasn't changed from when he was younger. I I first met him when he was about fifteen and he was, he and Rosberg actually were doing the Margutti Trophy kart race in Parma and Lewis, I think his his cart was on the wrong type of tyres for the day, so he kind of struggled in the final and um, didn't make the podium. And he was absolutely devastated. He did that sort of, you know, the pout that we're well familiar with, the the, the sulk, and his dad had to put his arm around his shoulder and go, it's all right, Lewis, you were brilliant, you are brilliant, you, we had the wrong tyres on today, we had the wrong tyres, you didn't have a chance, you did the best you could. But Lewis was inconsolable. And um, Nico didn't even make the final and did not appear to care if if, if 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 it wounded him deeply he did not show it at all to the extent that I wrote that I, I wasn't sure if he was serious about being a racing driver or not uh, something which he divulged to me years later had really pissed him off when he read
2: it I think you hit upon something really interesting there because to me that underpinned the whole of Rosberg's championship year his ability to just get control of his emotions whatever he was feeling he was able to compartmentalize it and I think we saw that in the last race, you know, you know, when he was in the uh, the, the Vettel Hamilton sandwich as as, as as the races as the laps were closing down, and we only after that race when he would won the world title did we see what that year had taken out of him, when he just completely wrung out in the, in the pressure. Yeah. It was unbelievable to to see how drained he was. But Vettel and Hamilton have both shown emo- emotional vulnerability. Vettel with his temper in Baku, and Lewis now with his sort of okay it didn't wreck his race but it's a pretty downcast P4 um, you know it shows that both these guys are actually in it heart and soul I think it's not just the racing they're not just racing automatons are they? it
1: is a very intense kind of pressure cooker the environment it's also all in public you know, they don't really have time to to gather their thoughts or whatever or, or just reflect on things a bit before they get a TV camera thrust in their faces or whatever they have to react and everyone's kind of interpreting their reactions I think it's difficult with Hamilton I think he's not naturally sort of in public the most expressive person and i think maybe he's i think he's always sort of struggled to how to present himself obviously he's a driver who's got supreme self-confidence and why the hell shouldn't he? he's a brilliant grand prix driver one of the all-time greats so i imagine if you finish fourth in a grand prix when you're lewis hamilton you're thinking actually well one without the penalty i should have won that as he said i was the quickest today and two i think he's also got the self-awareness to look at his performance and think you know i've driven pretty well in that race but actually you know, I'm Lewis Hamilton. I probably should have been third in that yeah, race that, rather that, than that fourth. That probably
2: feels like a terrible day at the office, doesn't it, for yeah. him?
0: Yeah. Well, if we if we look at um, a point that Autosport's Ben Anderson made in the uh, in his race report, which I th- I thought was very interesting, which is about Mercedes' tyre strategy, and that Lewis felt that he didn't beat Bottas and Vettel in Q3 because, or partly because he hadn't run uh on ultrasofts in Q two. So he hadn't had that run up. you always to see it. that
1: escalation through those runs. So yeah. he hadn't had that benefit to feel how the tires are responding. So yeah, there's there's some validity to that.
0: So he started eighth rather than sixth. Um, so obviously sixth was the best he could hope to start off with so that meant he had Grosjean and Perez to pass as well as in theory Verstappen who would have been behind on the grid Um, I I suppose my problem is that we're we're then into sort of if my grandma had wheels should be in a wagon territory because there's no guarantee that Verstappen would have had the anti-stall kick in and made such a terrible start and um, Lewis would still have had to deal with Raikkonen and I think it, it was not being able to pass Raikkonen that did the damage to Lewis's race rather than qualifying eighth rather than sixth.
2: Was that a very good strategic call by Ferrari to keep keep Kimi out that bit longer and slightly meddle with Lewis's race? Yeah. But because I think there was some intent yeah. Was that a smart play?
0: Because he's the underwhelming number two at the moment, um, he's just a sacrificial card yeah. that you can play.
1: I mean, the other view is that had I forget exactly where the gaps were behind them, so I need to double-check there's a space for him to drop into you but had Raikkonen pitted before Hamilton then gone quickly he maybe could have emerged ahead of him anyway and they could have kept him ahead to the, for the whole rest of the race although I think they would have followed Hamilton to the pits if they could but obviously as soon as Hamilton pitted they realized that they couldn't get Raikkonen back out ahead so at that point they thought well actually there's no loss to doing that and in fact if you look at it had they pitted him the lap after Hamilton he'd have been a bit closer maybe but he still probably finished fifth. Yeah. You do was yeah. you, in, the, in the end result with this one, he still finished fifth because there was such a big gap back to Roman Grosjean. So I think there was a little bit of that
0: there. You make a very good point there that it's very easy for us to carp at the timing of a particular pit call, but unless you uh, have, a, have a fixture on where that driver would have come out, um, it's it's very easy to make a mistake in saying you pitted at the wrong time. I
1: think Reikman would have been all right, but it would have been a question of whether he anticipated what Hamilton did?
0: Have you uh, got your special data screen up there? No, though, no, no. Right? Was, You're was just, all seeing. Eye. Well, because
1: Hamilton Hamilton was able to pit, so by definition they must have been able to pit right in into the same gap. So, so they could they could certainly have done that.
2: Just a small observation for our listeners. Um, the all-seeing eye is actually Ed Straw's iPad that's conveniently perched next to his laptop, and it's got a very fetching. It looks like calf leather case on it with a matching calf <laughs> iPhone calf leather. IPhone ca- calf leather case on that one. as was, you know it's, it's, i
1: am a very very stylish human being Has yeah, anyone who's ever seen me
0: setting new boundaries breaks boundaries of style. Do you know just parenthetically again as we were driving back from le mans this year and of course everyone in the car was asleep apart from the driver me and uh ed straw in the passenger seat uh, what who, was i doing rather rather than sleeping had about eight laptops open with uh uh, Rick
2: Wakeman style
0: Rick Wakeman style but without wearing a wizard's hat because we had a pokey small car that uh, we would have had to open <laughs> the sunroof to the but... thought of a wizard's hat is, <laughs> is, is, a, is a mental image that will never leave me I'm afraid so Ed, Ed's there playing on these laptops in eight different time signatures just like a Rick Wakeman uh, <laughs> uh, eight, ten minute guitar uh, keyboard solo and, and he's he's working out the, uh, the the fastest average laps for every single driver in the race to uh, delete uh, anomalous times, uh, slow times caused by uh, say, you know, safety car periods and slow zones, so that he can decide who actually was fast and who was properly slow. Data is your friend. You know, Data we, you, is your you know, friend. We talk about
2: job titles at the start of this podcast. Maybe we should make you Grand Wizard or something. <laughs> 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 if I get a hat, that'll do me. Can we make it up <laughs> in Photoshop, get one of the designers to do it, and use that as the icon for this podcast? If
1: you consider that would be a good use of a designer's time.
2: It would actually make us all laugh. So it's worth it for that. Well, you, you're the editorial Do you narrator. think the hat Thank
0: should you. be uh, in, in the calfskin leather? I think it should. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe that should <laughs> be a cape.
1: <laughs> a leather cape. Yeah, that sounds like Wizard straw.
0: Shall we Shall we? Yeah,
2: return shall we move
1: to on? the track, having headed deep into the runoff area, and move on to Daniel Ricardo, Third place. He was very happy with that. He seemed to suggest that he was happier with what he called kind of a, a strong third place, an earned podium, than he was with the Baku victory, which obviously has some good fortune in it. Red Bull are rumbling on. This is fifth consecutive podium for Daniel Ricciardo. Over the last five races, nobody has scored more points than him because he's got 85 points and Vettel scored 85 in that period as well. So mm-hmm. considering he's in the third best car, that's not bad at all.
0: It's an ominous record for anyone who is planning to do the podium interviews, knowing whether they'll have to either shoot the boot or issue the shoe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. The new thing there is to try and Try and get something for charity auction. That seemed to be what uh, Martin Runnell was very, very or, keen.
2: Or on. you do what Valtteri did, which was forcibly make sure that Ricardo doesn't get that champagne anywhere near your mouth. I thought it was borderline fight on the podium. Was, it's the funny, podium isn't it? Because
1: everybody, it. you see, everybody when they're offered it, they think, "Oh no, this is the last thing I want to yeah. do," and they sort of, they sort of do the uh, "Yes, I'm very enthusiastic about this." Oh god. Whereas boss <laughs> was close just, their eyes, no way. <laughs> I think Bottas was saying, "I've won this race." Do you, you, can you go
0: know down. how expensive that? Uh, champagne is. Is, it, is this
1: like when you ask people how much is a pint of milk to try and get them to prove their everyday human being credentials? This is like your to prove your champagne. I, 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 credentials. I know
0: you're an everyday human being. And this is so. be
2: like, are you really a Formula One person? Do you know how much the magnum of champagne goes?
0: Well, this this here's, here's Of course, the thing.
1: I don't pay for my champagne. I get gifted <laughs> it <laughs> because I'm that important.
0: Here's here's the thing. You see, you you would almost think that Formula One doesn't have a PR department, which of course it does now. Because from the Monaco Grand Prix onwards, it has appeared that um, we, we now have an official champagne supplier. For the, for the past couple of years, uh it's actually been Chandon, which is a sparkling wine. So Bob Constant has not been able to go champagne afterwards. He's had to say something, some absolute platitudinous twoggle. Yeah, let the is celebrations the f- is begin. The phrase that has been and and his lack of enthusiasm for saying it is palpable. He wants to say champagne. Since Monaco, we've had this new official Podium effervescent grape based liquid uh, provider. <laughs> and this stuff is apparently three grand a bottle, it comes in a carbon container comes in a carbon fiber container and it is three grand a bottle. None of us have been informed about this. Where was the press release?
1: Where's the free sample? <laughs> That's what you're getting to the point of the free it's sample. It's coming it? your way now,
2: isn't it? And
0: because I say that as, yeah. I say that as someone who's perfectly happy with like a 999 bottle of Prosecco from a but you know, uh, to be fair, that
2: is an absolutely outrageous blag that you've just that you've just <laughs> slipped into this podcast.
0: Bringing us back on, we've we've
1: spun off again in a shock move obviously the interesting thing is with ricardo is he's been stringing together these good results very good race drives max verstappen it's just all been going wrong he's had five retirements this year in nine races which is unheard of obviously a couple of them were down to some uh, some contact in turn 1 spain he was caught up in the, the bottas Räikkönen, thing at the first corner and it's off this time it's kvyat drop kicking fernando alonso's mclaren into him then a few other problems he had a battery problem one race an engine so it's just been really unfortunate for for Max Verstappen, he hasn't been able to pick up the points. He's been qualifying pretty well. And now he's he'll be looking at this points-gasm to Daniel Ricciardo.
2: Yeah. I had a conversation in Austria with uh, someone who was in position to know this, who suggested that Max might be slightly the author of his own demise by not overdriving the car, but, but by pushing it so hard at all times that basically his machine isn't quite able to take what he's asking from it. Yeah, And that Ricciardo is playing it just a little bit smarter. I don't know if that really stacks up to a close analysis, but it was an interesting view. I
1: I can believe that the way Ricardo drives is a little bit lighter on the machinery. I'm not completely convinced you can make such a big difference these days. There could could be a a small factor of that, but certainly in Austria, there's nothing Verstappen could have done about that. No, sure. No, he was
0: a passenger no. in someone else's shunt.
1: There is a point where, if if a trend continues excessively, then maybe you'll start saying, well, actually, there is a point where that starts to come into it. Because if you go about 20, 30 years, there are examples of drivers who were harder on the machinery. Gearboxes always used to be quite a big, a yeah. big thing. There were some drivers that were much, much harder on the gear shift. Um, so, Martin
0: Brundle tells that great story of being summoned to Ken Tyrrell's office and. Uh, uh, not knowing quite why until he walks in and there's various dog rings laid out on Ken's desk. And he goes, See here, Brundle, do you know what these are? These are your dog rings. Stop breaking them. <laughs> Which I think
1: is a fair instruction. I can't imagine that kind of thing happening now.
0: No. Uh, well, the, the, the parts are more resilient, don't they? A gearbox has to last more than one event and everything else does. But you, you just look at very, the, the, the things that have gone wrong with a shaft, like breaks. Brakes have been marginal for quite a few uh, drivers this year. So, especially at the beginning of the season when the technical package was quite unproven. So, he's a little bit unlucky and there. And that was a
1: brake failure relatively early in the race, straight after a pit stop in Bahrain, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, if it's right near the end of the race, maybe you'd say, well, you're taking a bit too much
2: out of them. But, Ed, you obviously would have overseen the uh, the Autosport nomination of uh, Ricardo as the world's best driver last year.
1: Yeah, he uh, he won it in fourteen as well. Yeah, and do
2: you think do you think he's heading that way this season?
1: Possibly. Uh, I think the performance comparison with Verstappen is interesting. I think the points tally has been massively distorted, but interesting to see how it would have worked with a, an equal reliability record. But I do think Ricardo is a very very canny racer. He was very very good when battling as well. Like in turn four, he, he he's very good in wheel to wheel stuff when in terms of knowing what he needs to do and what he can do and what he can get away with. Because sometimes people are being a little bit soft into that corner and being passed, but he just said, well oh, I'm just gonna break as late as I can and hold him up in the middle corner and just, just get on with it. And I think that's the thing I really like about Ricardo, the way he just the way he executes races. And if there's a chance to do something, overachieve a little bit, he just constantly seizes it. He'd probably say the only race where the Red Bull has been genuinely kind of a nailed on victory contender. In this era of regulations, was Monaco last year where he all but won, having seized pole and then uh, was stitched up by the by the pit stop. You could maybe argue that Singapore he could have he could have won when he was chasing down uh, late on, but the fact is that Ricardo, in a period when he's not had well, basically when he's had the third best car, occasionally sometimes second best car when uh, Ferrari was struggling, he's still been winning races more than, than others have. So that's a good a good thing he's able to do he just seizes opportunities and here he had a chance to finish ahead of Hamilton did it by a a slender margin that's what I like about Ricardo. you feel he one way or another finds a way to get the most out of everything he's got in a way a bit of the Alonso's in that regard I think he's not seen as this kind of relentless racer because he's such a kind of grinning light-hearted individual you think well he's nothing like Fernando Alonso but actually I think we can't, he can, he can a switch nice between yeah.
0: modes very easily uh you know out, out of the car he's the happy-go-lucky fair dinkum aussie uh, if i can go to national stereotyping there but he is isn't he you know he's, <laughs> and he's relaxed, got that pet kangaroo and the, the, hat with <laughs> the corks always drinking flosses. Yeah. he knows everything about neighbors um got all the records by um uh men at work <laughs> <laughs> we're ready to out of stereotypes <laughs>
1: He's got a Sydney Opera House
0: in his garden. <laughs> 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 Love uh, we, we, we've, we've We've slid into mockery. <laughs> Anyhow, he changes states very quickly. Out, out, out of the car, he's, he has that persona. He's very relaxed. He's fun, warm, easy to deal with. Inside the car, he's both incredibly competitive, but really relaxed as well, isn't he? When, when you hear his in-car radio and they're asking him a question, even in a pressure situation, you don't get any, don't talk to me, man, hey, don't, don't, don't get on the radio while I'm braking, man, that sort of thing. He'll give you this very calm, level-headed assessment of how whatever minutiae of the car performance they've asked him a question about. He'll give them a calm and succinct answer and get on with racing it.
2: I think it'll be very interesting to see where he ends up uh, at the end of this season. I mean, obviously, Red Bull would be desperate to re-sign him because his contract's up at the end of... I oh, know it's 18, isn't it? So 18, Sorry, so... But, f- there, but there is an
1: interesting wider landscape there with Verstappen as well and Ricardo. Knowing what Ricardo's like, Verstappen's been getting a bit chippy about the reliability. And then Ricardo gets a third place, he's running off celebrating with the team. He's very, very good at getting the team kind of in behind him and he knows the value of that. And Ricardo, who's a shrewd individual, he'll be sat there thinking, well, here's a chance for me just to sort of be the one everyone likes whereas Verstappen's off looking at going wherever else at the end of 18 because Verstappen will be looking thinking well if they can't give me a good car where can I get one and will be thinking well actually this guy's this guy's pretty quick and hard work maybe I can just sort of get a bit of an advantage right, this way right. right.
2: yeah, yeah, play the long yeah,
1: game yeah yeah sensible no, he's, he's, he's one of those drivers isn't it while we're talking about drivers beginning with R, Kimi Raikkonen that's who a was great described, link was described as a bit of a laggard Which is a wonderful word by Sergio Marcioni, the uh, Ferrari Supremo. That's got to be the
2: death now, hasn't it?
1: (laughs) Well, to pull out the exact quote, uh, which was given to Reuters, Marcioni said, I think Kimi has got to show a high level of commitment to the process. There are days when I think he's a bit of a laggard, but we'll see. Now, Anthony, you're you're a bit of a Raikkonen fan. We, We are all at heart respecters of Raikkonen's ability, and he's done some incredible things in Grand Prix cars. It's just you have to quite often think back quite a long way to do that
2: oh, Monaco amazing pole position Monaco was
1: a fantastic pole position so yeah, that's that's one since break. On <laughs> now Räikkönen's got 49% of Vettel's points this season it's 7-2 in qualifying he's been quite sort of fourth and fifth a lot of the time has had a couple of podiums you know he's not he's not without merit but can he kind of make the case for for Reich, and then is he anything more than just sort of a, a I think, solid number two I think two. you
2: can make Ferrari's case which is not to make the case for Kimi which we've actually done enough on racing in the past funnily enough, as a cover treatment he's a world champion which matters to them may not matter to anybody else he's a Ferrari world champion he's their last world champion all of these things are factors he's compliant he's quick enough he does a good job of being a wingman to Seb Vettel and that is all they need that is not saying he deserves a seat in Formula 1 or that it's the smartest decision that can be made but it does answer why they gave him a one-year contract extension for this year and why they may just do the same again for next year.
1: The thing is, though, I think if you're Ferrari, he's not taking enough points off Hamilton. Bottas beat Vettel. Räikkönen was was back in fifth. You know, I think you'll always think if you've got those top four cars, more often than not, he's going to be the fourth of them. He's still capable of turning in good quick laps. He is capable of good race performances. There have been points over the past few years where he's starting to get it. And he just kind of goes back into... Into that kind of mindset, we just can't seem to do it again. It's just a a strange and frustrating driver. I well, say. we all know the driver they
2: need, obviously. but but is Robert, he Robert Kubica? Well, yeah, yeah. we will get on to him in a minute. But <laughs>
1: next in it, the running order. But yeah, I, yeah. I would contend that I think if Ferrari think he's doing the job they need him to, I think in terms of fitting in well with Seb Vettel, certainly. Yeah. But in terms of the points he's bringing, Sebastian Vettel's leading the leading the drivers' championship. Ferrari are not leading the constructors' championship, and that does that does matter because it also means that. Therefore, he's not in a position to cancel Bottas out, so often not in a position to to tackle Hamilton. So I always believe that as a team, and Ferrari has got a long history of having kind of a number one and a number two, I've generally been a believer in you're better off in having two drivers capable of getting the absolute top results. That does bring some challenges with it, but you're better off with that than without it. Stuart Coddling, you're you're cogitating. I'm cogitating. You're You're considering launching a broadside. Are you going to close the debate down now?
0: No, I'm just going to agree with everything you've just said and close it out by saying two things. One of which is that Kimi disappoints me more often than he gives me joy these days. And I do look forward to a good Kimi Raikkonen performance.
1: I would have loved him to have won Monaco. That would have been a brilliant yeah, story. Would I think have been great. That would have been great for Formula One. And yeah, it was, we don't really want to get back into raking over yeah, the strategy yeah, there. He was, he was very unfortunate scab. in that race in many ways. Anyway, you mentioned Robert Kubica there. Last race in Formula One in 2010. Obviously, he had his rally crash on the Ronda de Andorra Rally on February the sixth, 2011, just after the first test. He's been back in a in a Renault. He's tested one at Valencia at the start of June. He's now being talked about as a possible returnee, despite the fact that his uh, his arm obviously is in, in a fairly bad state. I think it's it's easy to underestimate how much damage was done uh, done from that. It's quite. I, I interviewed him in Tuscany a few years ago after the Monaco Grand Prix in 2014. And it was quite a surprise to see sort of how much damage had had been done. It was, it was very clear, the limited mobility. But could he come back? Wouldn't that be brilliant?
2: It'd be amazing. I mean, he's due to test this week again for Renault. Um, they're not
0: doing it out of the goodness of their heart, are they? It costs no, money. No, yeah, and
2: they're doing it for a reason, yeah. And I think the key point will be... Um, if he is in the car for the post-Hungarian Grand Prix test, I think that's the point at which Renault have to stop being coy about the whole thing. And say, okay, yes, it's a serious race evaluation, and he could even be in the car as soon as the Belgian Grand Prix. And this isn't wild speculation. This is this is the way, this is the tone of the conversation with Renault. This is this is the direction travel for Robert at the moment. Remarkable well, it, though, and even unbelievable, though it seems. This if, is what's playing out. If there. you
1: could get Robert Kubica anywhere near his best into a Grand Prix car, you'd be mad not to.
2: Well, i've got some little nuggets from from the weekend one of which is that he did 200 laps on arguably the best sim in formula one uh of barcelona and his times were fully competitive he's he's beaten hulkenberg's times on renault's own simulator he was quicker than sorotkin at the valencia test after six years away from a formula one race seat that it, he it doesn't seem possible but he hasn't lost any speed obviously there are some physical limitations and they may play out at a circuit like Singapore or Monaco with very tight hairpins, although that's not a given, actually. That's speculation. We won't well, really know until until the races happen. In every other aspect, he's as fast as he's ever been. The
1: one thing I do know is that a few years ago, he yeah. said that he would not be able to do a Monaco or a Valencia. He was certain of that. It's but he was quite back. confident he be able to do a Barcelona, for example. So that, for yeah. me, is the is the big question.
2: Part of his rehabilitation process was to test a GP3 car, um, which doesn't have power-assisted steering, so it's actually heavier to Mm. steer than an F1 car. And one of the tracks at which he tested was a place called Francia Corta, which is a little Italian racetrack with a left hand and right-hand hairpin. He chose that track specifically, and he chose the car in which to drive it specifically, to actually test this specific weakness. And he set competitive times. That's very encouraging. That that doesn't mean, obviously, that he can drive a Formula 1 car around Lowe's or whatever it is, turn four at singapore but in most other aspects it appears that his physical capacity is is sufficient and his speed is there
1: the other interesting thing is when it you know i'm no medical specialist but i know with nerve damage nerves take out a very long time to recover because often when you cut nerves they i forget there's a there's a technical term for it but they they kind of die to the root if you like then have to regrow so it's not like you kind of cut them and it grows from the grows from the cut so it is conceivable that it's taken four or five years to get back into position he's been gradually, gradually improving. So it's certainly, certainly believable. I, I can certainly believe that two or three years ago he wouldn't be able to do it, but now maybe he can.
0: What's interesting for me is that that first test at Valencia, was um, it, it, it was organised and executed in conditions of utmost secrecy. I know we were invited, but we were the only media organisation there. As far as I know, you were there, uh, which on, on behalf we, of us, um, was
2: the only working media organization. There's one of the journalists there, but he was a, actually a friend, and mate of Robert's. He wasn't working. He was there to see
0: it. So it, it wasn't a circus. It was done in absolute or well, almost absolute secrecy. Uh, and now we're in a position where Renault are not only pulling the veil of secrecy off, they're actually billing it in advance. Hey, he's going to be uh, testing again. I, I don't know whether the, there'll be a rubric by which people can go and watch or there'll be uh, any invitations. Uh, the opposite but... is the case. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it should be noted, Cyril Abitbol of Renault has said the second test will be to assess his capabilities to return to the highest level of competition. Now, Renault would only do that if there was at least some interest. And you think in, what, in what's in it for them? Well, potentially is, is, a, a great driver.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, this, this is where I come back to with the whole thing. If you If you just put aside the specific nature of his injury and physical limitation in his right arm. Just put that aside for one second and assess it, if you like, objectively. One of the world's fastest Formula One drivers, still, is available to you. Why wouldn't you evaluate that man yeah, for, you for, or, for a return?
1: And I think the other thing with Kvitsa is he's, as a character, he's incredibly focused. He's basically all about motorsport competition. He doesn't care about all the other rubbish. He's very single-minded, determined, intelligent guy. Someone also who had know, Certainly when I last spoke to him, he, seemed, he had an acute understanding of the limitations he currently had, but there was still that desire to try and get back to it. He's one of the people who has got that ability to, after a long period, come back, reabsorb himself into it and get close to that old level. Because I think the thing with him is, sometimes when people come back into something after a long gap, they don't necessarily approach it with quite the... Seriousness, they they should do, and I think. Well, are like, talking about like, But I think someone like Robert Cooper Kibitzer will come into it, and you'll think, actually, this is going to be really difficult. But he'll know how good he can be. It was snatched away from him.
2: It wasn't like he he achieved everything, wanted, gone over the hill, and wanted one last lap, and he he didn't get his one last lap. He was absolutely. He was he was the, one of the coming guys, wasn't he? He'd won a race. Yeah, his 2010 season with Renault was it, absolutely
1: yeah. absolutely incredible. I remember watching him trackside at Monaco.
2: Yeah, we all, Stunning. We all knew it, and. You know, we were watching and the team knew it too. And it's what's kept him... I mean, I've interviewed him for the next issue of F1 Racing. He admits and he says explicitly it's what's kept him going. It has been the goal. Your point about his focus has been the thing. He has kept alive the dream and the idea of being able to return to Formula One. And most people have said it's just no way. And if you've seen the state his right arm is in now, it's hard to actually believe what you're seeing.
0: Shall we talk timescales? Because as we know, the clock is ticking on Julian Palmer's time in Formula 1 and the likelihood is that he will be replaced after the summer break. And there had been some talk of Pierre Gasly being slotted in in order to smooth relations with Red Bull. What if, you know, I'm not quite sure whether would would Bobby Kay qualify for a super licence? What, what hoops uh, would he have to jump I, through I'll to be able to get question, back in?
2: And that particular point isn't an issue.
1: I think, yeah, ultimately he's a Grand Prix winner, isn't he? So I presume they'll they'll look back at that. I and mean, it's it's interesting as to exactly what they want to do with Julian Palmer. To give him credit, he was pretty close to Hulkenberg in Q one in Austria. Which fine, um, you don't want to be too, you don't want to read too much into that. You know, he's Bahrain, he Was he was pretty strong. It has been a a very very disappointing season from from him. And I think the pressure's on. To try and do it. I think if you're in Renault's situation, I mean I'm not sure what the various commercial aspects connected to that that Palmer deal are, et cetera, and whether there's an element to which they might need to run to the end of the season. But if they Contracts. got to a point Well, exactly. But if they got to a point where they thought, actually, we think Robert is able to do this. We want to bring him in next year, then you get him into the race car as soon as you possibly can.
2: F P one, for example, FP1 F P one program. Even if it's
1: F P one, or just think, well I'll give him five, six races just to get his eye in and get a feel for it, to understand what's going on. That that would be the logical thing to do. And you know, Kibitzer is a, is a fantastically good driver. There are people who doubt how good he was. But this was a seriously good guy and a seriously driven guy. You know, he's still annoyed about BMW kind of giving up on 2008. He was right in the championship fight. He's definitely, definitely got that, that drive and that determination to to do well. And I think F1 would be richer with him and even if he comes in and he's slightly diminished because you can't
2: i'm not sure i'm not sure he will be you know just from from what, from what i've from what others have seen in terms of outright speed there's there's not been a, a, a diminution if you like he's no slower there may be other things that become apparent over the course of a year that's the thing it'll
1: always be the slightly
2: yeah but he said himself that, that in some ways his driving has improved because he feels that he his degree of sensitivity has become more acute um, because he's had because it's had to, you know, in the way that if you lose one sense, another compensates, like if you go a bit deaf, your eyesight apparently gets a bit better or vice versa. It, he drew that kind of analogy. He says because he's actually got a limitation with his right arm, his overall feel at the steering wheel has, has become enhanced because he's having to hold it, if you like, or touch it in a more acute and a more attuned way.
1: And it's interesting as well, the, the mindset of someone like Kubica because he didn't go to a race circuit for a long time after that. When I last did, did that, I did a, the interview with him in 2014. He said he'd still not been to a circuit. Yeah. He'd been invited to a DTM round by Toto Wolff, I think. And he said he was driving there and he sort of, the noise and he just couldn't go there because he, he kind of knew what he'd lost.
2: This apparently is why he did the other categories and not single-seaters. It was one of the reasons anyway, was because he didn't want to put himself in an environment where he knew how good he could be or had been and then find himself coming up short, whereas rallying there's nothing to compare to. He mm. didn't have a previous sort of base
1: and he was He was quick in rallying, too many yeah. crashes, but... Quick.
2: Yeah, but it didn't matter to him that he he didn't have some sort of benchmark of being like you know uh, a world championship winner which he had which he had been in Formula 1 he'd won a won a Grand Prix so he knew he was a Grand Prix winning level driver uh, in a Formula 1 car and he didn't want to put himself in a situation where he felt that he was achieving less than that and the only reason he was able to do it now is that he feels he can it would be an absolutely brilliant story is it the and biggest I'm- comeback ever is it the biggest sporting comeback of any kind it's
0: certainly bigger than Alan Jones coming back
1: <laughs> It. it it's up there, isn't it, given the nature of his injuries? Because for those who are not familiar with the detail of the accident, it's pretty horrific. He basically went into some armco and was pretty much sliced by by some by some armco that came through through the car. Well, it was his, a horrendous his, incident. His
0: hand was basically hanging off by the yeah. skin. It was uh, not very good he, at all.
2: He... he, he uh, you know, he was clinically dead briefly because he lost so much blood and he was kept alive through, you know, plasma and whatever else.
1: Well, I mean, his co-driver was sort of horrified by the scene he was seeing because so it was just the amount of blood loss, etc. It was, it was a horrendous, horrendous accident. So it is a pretty remarkable sporting comeback, given the nature of the injuries, if he can do it. And I think the positive thing is, if he does come back, I think he will at least be somewhere in the neighbourhood of Being an outstanding grand prix driver again because I don't think he'd do it just to sort of drive about and be a bit unremarkable. No, I, I don't either. think that's in his makeup to go and be a an average grand prix driver. And ultimately, even if it's a Kubitzer who's a couple of percent off what he was, still better that's than the grid, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's still an outstanding driver because he was so good.
0: What's interesting for me and really came out in Anthony's story in F1 Racing this uh, month
1: the August issue,
0: the August, the, the August issue of our August organ. Um, the uh, we've gone on so long I've almost forgotten what I was going to say. Here we go, rope it in. We're back. Um, the the thing to me that, that was fascinating was how much the team, the the Alan Permains of the team, were rooting for him to be a success, and. I kind of feel that if he were to come back, that would have a kind of galvanising effect on the people who are there from the old days, as it were. And for a team that is trying to claw its its way back into contention and to become what it used to be, that could be a really important psychological step. And then you have... If you zoom back even further and look at the even bigger big picture, you have an upper echelon of team management, the Abitables of this world, who really, really need to demonstrate to their paymasters some sort of success and forward momentum because the Carlos Gones of this world are looking at the Renault team very closely and need to see progress and in- increased competitiveness.
2: Actually, if you're looking at it in a very, very cynical way, take the human aspect out of this you would be getting potentially a world championship contender for nothing or for free. Robert's actually said, I'll drive for free because he's got some Polish supermarket backing. Um, So you'd be getting, arguably, an Alonso standard driver who otherwise would cost you $40 million a year for free. That's a very cynical way of looking at it. That would
0: appeal massively to Carlos Ghosn. But but there are plenty of
2: people who do look at the sport in that
1: way. Well, ultimately... That should come into it. If you're a team, you want the best driver available, and if you can get them cheap because they're damaged goods, yeah. well, there's the thing, all the better. There's,
2: there's the cold hard, there's the cold hard logic of this story, which is what you just articulated. And then there's also these, you know, an amazing sort of romantic aspect to the whole thing. But, but
1: also, it would be a just reward for the team for having a look at him. Yeah. Nobody else has done that. You know, they had to invest in doing it. They had to think. You know, we could we could look at what what this guy can do. And it's interesting because Kavitsa was a real galvanizing force for the team. He was. At times even maybe pushing them a bit too hard. It sounds like he's mellowed a tiny bit, might have just taken some of the the rough edges off that. So there they've got a driver who really could do a great job for them. And of course, he came into Renault at a time when they'd lost Alonso, who obviously was a great driving force. 2009 didn't go brilliantly with Alonso, I think in some aspects they were quite pleased to see see the back of him on that particular occasion. Whereas Kubica was this driver they could just throw in and it's like, right, okay, this guy's this guy's mega. He's he's able perfect, to get top perfect results. for that
2: team, actually, in my view. Sort of um, Enston, you know, no bullshit F1 yeah. operation, all about the racing. Yeah. Kubica, no bullshit F1 driver, all about the racing. Absolutely perfect fit. Square peg in a square hole. Exactly. So
1: it's just down to hoping that he is able to return. It sounds like a lot of boxes have been checked. If he can dot the I's and cross the T's and make a return, that would be absolutely brilliant. I think any F1 fan should be delighted to see that.
0: Two cliches in one breath, Ed. That would exactly. be a great way to close the podcast out. Anyway,
1: let's uh, let's move into the, the outroduction as I can't really call it. I don't think I've said and obviously. I don't think I've said obviously too much in this podcast, which is uh, which is very, very good news. Well if everyone can just check autosport.com on a regular basis for the latest news and features on F One and Motorsport. Autosport magazine's out Thursday with Ben Anderson's in depth Grand Prix report, latest issue of F One Racing Magazine. Is Lewis Hamilton's guide on how to win the British Grand Prix. We'll be back soon with another Autosport Podcast.
0: I wanted to go left, but the bloody thing wouldn't turn, so I went right. I made a decision. It was the wrong decision, but I made it anyway. It's almost like haikus. Lucky Land
1: Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office.
1: Inspired by a belief in the God given rights of every human being and in the good that comes from exercising these rights well, the founders of our great nation chose independence. As do we. Hillsdale College accepts no government funding because independence makes possible the good to which we aspire.
2: Sports Social Podcast Network
1: Step into the world of power